Quickly, Romans uh, chapter 2. I want to look at verses 17 through 29 this morning. And while you're finding there, your way there, I want to alert you to the fact that at the end of the sharing time this morning, we would like to give you as a fellowship an opportunity to share with us any items of praise that you might have to God for his goodness, for his faithfulness, his compassion, his uh, mercy. We'll see this morning as we look at this passage the importance of God's mercy and compassion, that that's the only reason we stand before him is because he's gracious and compassionate. And if you've uh, seen some evidence of his faithfulness to you recently that you would like to share with us, we would encourage you to do that. So we'll make an opportunity for you to do that. So be thinking about that as we go. Now, Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, is trying to establish the truth that every man, every woman, everywhere needs the gospel. But every single human being, adult, child, teenager, needs the good news of the gospel. Now, in order to prepare us for the good news, he first of all has to tell us some bad news. There first of all has to be bad news for modern man before there can be good news for modern man. What Paul has done in the opening three chapters is... uh, used an argument that sort of strikes me uh, like a rainbird sprinkler that I use to cover my yard. just kind of makes the sweep of the entire lawn and covers it all in its sweep. Paul's began, begun in chapter 1 with the obviously uh, immoral Gentiles, those whose lifestyle uh, was obviously degenerate and uh, uh, immoral, who were... Uh, guilty of sexual immorality and homosexuality without repentance, in fact, openly encouraged that kind of lifestyle. And then in chapter 2, he shifted his gaze and covered a second segment of humanity when he talked to the moral Gentiles, those Gentiles who, although they were not believers, nevertheless would look at the lifestyle of these immoral pagans and get just as grossed out and disgusted by it as you and I would and would wag their finger at them and says, that's naughty, that's disgusting. And Paul's argument to them is that when you judge others, when you condemn others, you at the same time have condemned yourself because you too have done the very same things that you accuse them of doing. He says, you Gentiles have a law written in the heart. And that standard that you find written in your very own heart is a standard that you repeatedly Violate, And your conscience tells you that. It tells you when you have violated the standard that you find in your own heart. Now, that leaves the rest of us sitting in the dry corner of the yard, feeling fairly smug about uh, Paul hosing off these other people. But now, in the end of chapter 2, the sprinkler finally gets to us, and he's going to hose us off like he did everybody else. So let's look at verses 17 through 29, begin in verses 17 and 18. What we discover as we go through this um, uh, paragraph is that the Jew of Paul's day was inclined to resort to two things to feel good about himself and his relationship to God. Two things that he felt commended him uh, to God in favor of these Gentiles on the outside. And the two things that a Jew used to commend himself were, first of all, his reliance on the Scriptures. He believed and affirmed and was loyal to the Bible, to the revealed Word of God. And Paul's going to show us that that's not enough. It's not enough to believe in the Scriptures. And the second thing that the Jew would resort to was circumcision, that he had been signed with the seal of God's covenant. And we'll see that in the same way, there are many 
uh, churchgoers, many people who call themselves Christians today, who commend themselves in their own eyes to God because they have gone through some Christian ritual, such as baptism or confirmation or church membership or the Lord's table. And Paul's going to tell us quite plainly that that is not enough either to be set right with God. I read a book several years ago called How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And Paul's argument here seems to be addressed to those who are religious without being a Christian. Let's begin in verses 17 and 18. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Now, the first thing he points out is that the Jews relied upon the law. By the law, Paul here is thinking of the Old Testament, the Bible of his day. The Jew relied on the scriptures. means to rest on them or to depend upon them. The, the word means to find a place of rest or comfort. And the Jew of Paul's day had found a place of rest and comfort, a place to depend in the scriptures. And he counted upon the scriptures. Now, I hope that's true of every one of us that's gathered here today, that we too rely upon the scriptures. We trust in it. We believe in it. I firmly believe that the scriptures are the inerrant and infallible word of God to us, that the scriptures contain the, the revelation of the very heart and mind of God without error, without uh, tarnish. Now, the Jew of Paul's day would have said exactly the same thing. Now, as a result of their reliance upon the law, the Jews, the end of verse 17, boasted in God. And that can be true of us. You substitute for the word Jew here, substitute the phrase church member or evangelical or fundamentalist or churchgoer, and the argument applies directly to us as it did to the Jew. That we likewise are those who boast in God. We'll occasionally find ourselves thinking of the media or as the government or educators as godless in contrast to us who boast in God. The third thing he says about them is not only do they rely upon the scriptures and boast in God, but they know his will in verse 18. Because they had been instructed out of the scriptures, they knew what God's standards for living were. And hopefully that's true of all of us. We know the will of God. We've been instructed out of the scriptures. And so we know what God's design for marriage is and the kind of husband that he intends me to be, the kind of father that he intends me to be to my children, the kind of wife that he intends me to be, or the kind of mother he intends me to be, the kind of friend that he intends me to be, the kind of witness he desires for me to be in the community. We know his will because we've been instructed out of the scriptures. And the last thing he says is that the Jew was able to approve the things that are essential. The verb approve here has the idea of approving something after testing it. Suggests the ability to evaluate and to discriminate and then to identify the things that are essential. To be able to single out the better or the best from the better and the good and to single out the good from the evil. Uh, the Jew was able to do that because he'd been instructed out of the scriptures. Now, hopefully we are able to do the same thing. In fact, this Paul uses this exact phrase in Philippians 1 to uh, describe his desire for the Philippian church as believers, that they would be able to approve the things that are essential. And I'm sure, in fact, that that's true of us in this room. Perhaps you have seen families around you, and you've seen the way these parents are raising their children. 
and it's obvious to you that there are some basic problems in their child raising, a lack of love or consistency or time or a failure to discipline consistently. You're able to discern that. Uh, this is what enables us to evaluate uh, sources, secular sources, books we read and television programs we watch and what people tell us, what people teach us. just read a book recently, for instance, uh, which was a very, very helpful book written by a professional psychologist analyzing a certain dynamic in husband-wife uh, relationships. Very good analysis of one of the basic problems that characterize a, a, a great number of marital relationships in this country. Very uh, good, helpful analysis and di diagnosis. But mixed in with this, because she's not a believer, mixed in with this was error sewn right in with the truth. But because I've been instructed out of the Scriptures, I was able to sift through that and separate the wheat out from the chaff, and take truth out of that book that I can use in seeking to help people, and then discard the rest. So we are able, because we've been instructed out of the law, to approve the things that are essential. Now, the result of this, Paul says in verse 19, is that the Jew, because he'd been instructed out of the Scriptures and knew them and believed in them, that the Jew saw himself as the moral and spiritual tutor to everyone else. You, he says in verse 19, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. The Jew looked at everyone around him and considered them blind, that they simply could not see. Morally, spiritually, they were blinded, had no vision, no perception. And the Jew considered himself as the one who would guide these poor blind people and take them by the hand and lead them along. Now, in the same way, because we've been instructed out of the Scriptures, we may look around at people around us and realize how blind they are to what they are doing to themselves. We may see very clearly that a friend is about to make a tragic choice, perhaps a choice in a marriage partner. And we can see as clear as can be that if they follow through with that decision, it's going to produce great heartache and great uh, misery. And yet they themselves seem to be totally blind to this, and we want to guide them. The Jew saw everyone else around him, secondly, as in darkness, groping about without clue one spiritually about how to put their life back together. And because we've been instructed out of the Scriptures, we see people whose lives are in darkness who are stumbling about to try to get some handle on life. And we realize that we can be a light to them because we know the truth. The Jew looked at everyone around him as foolish, next, as unwise and, and untaught, and, and was there to correct them and to uh, help point out to them the error and the foolishness of what they were about. And likewise, because we've been instructed out of the Scriptures, we can see people around us who are making very unwise choices and acting foolishly uh, without a shred of common sense or biblical uh, instruction. And we want to correct them. We want to step in and to help them make wise choices instead of foolish ones. Lastly, the Jew saw everyone around him as immature or childish. And he was there to instruct them and bring them to moral and spiritual maturity. And likewise, we often see people around us who respond to circumstances and to, to people in ways that are childish and petty and uh, infantile. And we want to step in and instruct them 
because we have in the Scriptures the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, just as the Jew did. Now, the problem is not that we want to do those things, nor is the problem that uh, we on occasion do those things. That's part of our ministry to one another. But the problem that Paul detected in the Jew, and this is the problem that we must watch for, is uh, what Paul detected in the Jew was a spirit of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and a sense of superiority to these poor, unlightened fools out in the darkness. And notice how the Jew looked at everyone else, blind, in darkness, foolish, immature. How did the Jew describe himself? As a guide, a light, a corrector, a teacher. And it's a great problem when a believer, because of his understanding of the truth, begins to see himself as one whose mission in life is to straighten everybody else out. Ever run into a believer like that? He's straight on the elective decrees of God and superlapsarianism and sublapsarianism and can tell you exactly which is which and which you ought to believe and going to compel you to do that. And may know who the Antichrist is and exactly when Jesus is coming back and how long he will be here when he does and are going to set you straight on this. And Paul says that's something we must watch for, those of us who believe in the Scriptures, that we do not allow this to create in us a spirit of superiority uh, in regard to people around us. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, told a story about uh, a dear old woman who came to him after he had preached a sermon one morning, and she was very proud of this particular episode. She had broken her wrist in a fall, and so she went into the emergency room to be treated for this, and the doctor who was patching her back together let a couple of four-letter words slip in conversation, and she immediately began to lecture him from the Scripture on the evils of profanity and gave him a good uh, tongue-lashing in the process and was proud of herself for being so forthright and straightening out this poor, unenlightened pagan. Now, Paul says that's the thing, that kind of spirit of, of seeing ourselves in a position of superiority to those around us is the very thing that we need to guard against. That the biblical perspective, as the old metaphor goes, is that a Christian is simply a beggar who has found a place to be fed. That's all. We're beggars just like everyone else. The only difference is we found someone who can feed us. That's the only difference. Now, Paul goes on, secondly, to say that not only is there a problem with arrogance in those who believe in the Scriptures... But there is secondly a problem of inconsistency and hypocrisy. This is what he points out in verses 21 and 22. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, these are all rhetorical questions. The answer to all of these is yes. What Paul observed about the Jew is that because each one of these three commandments he mentions were in the Ten Commandments, and he observed that the Jew would teach these clearly and with authority to others, and yet consistently violated them in his own life. And there is this curious and blatant inconsistency between what the Jew taught and what the Jew did. The Jew, for instance, would preach that it's wrong to steal. And yet in Paul's day, Jews were known as the shrewdest and sharpest businessmen of their day, able to turn any business deal to their profit, and were experts at ripping people off in, in business arrangements. 
Now, the same thing could be said of many of us in this room, that we preach against stealing. We know that the Bible teaches stealing, and yet in subtle ways, we ourselves may be guilty of violating this very standard, padding uh, an expense account here and there, perhaps just by a few dollars, or fudging just a tad on the income tax, or drawing a paycheck for eight hours of work when we've only in good conscience put in six, taking extra long lunch breaks and coffee breaks, and so in a subtle way, siphoning time away from our employer that properly belongs to him. Paul says, secondly, that the Jews taught against adultery and yet committed it themselves, that these Jewish businessmen and their travels around the Roman Empire were not above a little hanky-panky with slave girls that they would encounter. And likewise, we as believers in the Scripture teach that immorality and adultery is wrong. And yet, uh, how many of us in this room have taken a peek at a pornographic magazine or pornographic movie or have fantasized about sexual relationships with someone to whom we are we're not married. Jesus says that's adultery committed in the heart. So again, he points out to us that we say one thing, even as people who believe in the Bible, we say one thing, and yet so often we do something different. The third thing he mentions is that the Jews abhorred idols, that this was what they were known for in the Roman world as those who were monotheistic and, and proclaimed uh, and professed an abhorrence of idols and graven images. And yet Paul says these very Jews who abhorred idols robbed temples. Now, historically, we do not know exactly to what he is referring here, but the best guess is that Jews in business had discovered that there was a very profitable market, black market, in icons and images. Uh, often the temples which were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire would contain idols of very delicate and fine craftsmanship. And they had suppliers who would steal these from pagan temples, and then they would sell them on the black market and turn a profit. So at the very same time they, they proclaimed an abhorrence of idols, they were trafficking in them and making a profit off the buying and selling of them. So that's what Paul points out to the Jew. You preach one thing, you do another. Now that's the lesson of this passage to us. We preach one thing as those who believe in the inerrant scriptures, and yet so often we do something different. Uh, for instance, we believe that the scriptures teach that you must be truthful, must be honest, we must be people of integrity. And we insist on this in our politicians. And uh, therefore, we have wagged our fingers at those politicians who have stumbled at this very point. And yet, if you've been following the news, you realize that one of our very own this last week, someone who believes in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures just as much as you and I do, was caught, uh, at the very least, exaggerating or stretching the truth about, about his own past. We say one thing, and yet even as those who believe in the Bible, we do something different. One of the things we seek to teach our interns, and we labor to do this, is to teach them what Paul taught Timothy in 2 Timothy, that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all patient when wrong, correcting with gentleness those who are in opposition. So we seek to teach them in dealing with theological themes and scriptural issues to be kind and gentle and not to be argumentative and dogmatic. And I've taught that for seven years. As long as I've had pastoral interns under my care, I've sought to impart this truth to them. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And yet just two or three weeks ago in our own staff meeting, I found myself being argumentative and belligerent, and dogmatic, and insistent, and angry, and quarrelsome. All of the very things I so much dislike in others, 
I was practicing at uh, full speed and had to apologize to everybody on our staff for that. That's Paul's point. We say and preach one thing, and yet so often we do something different. This can show up in little ways that are rather uh, humorous. I found myself saying in just this tone of voice to someone a few weeks ago, Relax! Take it easy! Settle down! Don't get so upset! It's curious inconsistency between what we say and what we do. And there's a blindness in ourselves. This is why we so much need each other, as we're often blind to these inconsistencies in ourselves. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 7, we so clearly see the speck in someone else's eye and yet are blind to the log which is protruding from our own um, eye socket. One of our interns was telling me last year a story about his grandparents. Uh, they were rather uh, elderly, and they, this was at a time when the road from here to Pendleton was still two-lane blacktop. And they were coming down off the grade into uh, Pendleton at night. And as they came across the crest and began to descend, uh, it began to fog up. And the visibility got worse and worse. And so Rich's grandfather began to drive slower and slower. And traffic began to back up behind them. It's very narrow and windy. It's hazardous to pass. But people finally, out of sheer frustration, began to pass them. They'd honk their horns, uh, make unfriendly gestures as they drove by. And yet the further down the hill they got, the, the more the fog increased, the less the visibility was, until by the time he reached the bottom of the hill, he was practically driving at a standstill. And then Rich's grandmother just happened to reach up and wipe off the windshield, and they discovered that the fog was on the inside of the car. <laughs> and I thought that was just a, a perfect metaphor for us that uh, we're fogged up on the inside and everybody else can see it and, and we can't. One of the ways we get around this, as Ray Stedman pointed out, is to cover up this inconsistency as we cleverly re rename certain vices so they don't appear quite so bad when they show up in our lives. For instance, uh, other people lie. We simply stretch the truth a little. Other people steal. We are simply taking what rightfully belongs to us. Other people are belligerent. We're simply standing up for our rights. Other people are dogmatic and closed-minded. We simply have strong convictions. A friend of mine was telling me that they uh, were seeking to deal with their youngest uh, son, and uh, they decided uh, to develop a set of family guidelines. They had a little family caucus, and the entire family agreed that as a family, our behavior, relationship with each other would be characterized by these five things. Uh, this was for the son's benefit. One of the items on the list is we will always speak with courtesy and kindness to other members of the family. And this was for his benefit because this is an area in which he needed to grow. So several nights later at dinner, uh, the father got upset with the son for something and began to ream him out and read him the riot act. And right in the middle of the tirade, the son simply got up from the dining room table and walked over to the refrigerator where the list was posted and pointed to item number five. Stopped his dad uh, right in his tracks, had him, had him dead to rights. And that's Paul's point. We say and preach the standards of God, and yet so often our lifestyle is characterized by something much different. Now, uh, in fact, we'll find, actually, that the older we get in the Lord, the more mature we get, the worse this problem becomes, or the worse the gap seems to grow. And I've discovered the older, more mature believers I talk to are not less aware of their own sinfulness as they grow older, but more aware of their sinfulness, more aware of their capacity to sin, more aware of a blackness 
and evil that lurks in their own hearts. Gordon MacDonald was telling a story about uh, when he and his wife bought a plot of land to build a little weekend retreat and uh, undeveloped plot of ground. And as they began the project, there were these huge boulders that obviously needed to be cleared before any work could be done. And so those with great effort and pain were cleared off the field. But as they began to grade the land, they discovered many, many other smaller rocks and boulders, which likewise had to be cleaned out. And that's what we'll discover. We come to the Lord with certain major problems, compulsive behaviors or besetting habits, and we desperately want God to clear these out of life. And when he does, we discover that in their place are many other smaller besetting sorts of sins that we never noticed before. And so the problem of this gap between what we preach, what we proclaim, what we believe in, and what we do can actually worsen as we grow in the Lord. Well, what is the point of all this? What is Paul driving at? Well, I think it's very simple. He wants to make clear to us as people who believe in the Bible that there must be some basis on which we are set right before God other than our behavior that our behavior is simply not enough to commend us to God. Our belief in the Bible is not enough to commend us to God because we do not obey what we believe. We must be, as he will go on to argue, we must be justified, set right, put into a right relationship with God on the basis of our faith in the work of Jesus Christ and never seek to commend ourselves or feel good about ourselves before God on the basis of our behavior because it's simply not good enough. Now, that theme will be developed as we get into the end of chapter 3, and so I don't want to steal David's thunder. But that's the real point that Paul is driving at, that God has found a way in Jesus Christ for all of us in this room to be satisfied and be accepted before him, independent of our behavior. And that is the good news of the gospel that Paul is preparing us for. Now, the second refuge of the Jew was the fact that he was circumcised. And this can be the second basis on which churchgoers or church members commend themselves. That, uh, well, I may not be perfect. I'll grant you your argument in verses 17 through 24. But I've been baptized or I've been confirmed. The Jew's second line of defense would be that he had been circumcised. Circumcision was the seal or the sign of God's choice of Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people. The Jew would say, I bear that sign in my body. That's a a sign that I belong to God's chosen people. I'm one of his. And Paul's argument, that simply is not enough. Let's see how he argues. Verses 25 through 27. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, notice, by the way, that he does say that in the right circumstances, circumcision can be of value. So the scriptures are not anti-ritual. They're not against ritual. But they are for a proper understanding of the place of ritual. Now, Paul's point is circumcision can be of aid or benefit or value. The word means all those things. If the symbol is accompanied by the substance. If you practice the law, he says to the Jew then your circumcision is of some value. But, he says, in the verse 25, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, if there is no substance, then the symbol is of no value. It's of no use. It's just as if you were uncircumcised. 
because the symbol apart from the substance is of no value. And he says in verse 26, as a matter of fact, that the uncircumcised may be considered like the circumcised man because of his obedience. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, if Paul's argument is if a man has the substance, then whether or not he has the symbol is unimportant. Gold bullion is gold bullion regardless of whether it has the stamp of the U.S. government on it and is worth just as much. That's his point. It's substance and not the symbol that counts. In fact, he says in verse 27, those who have not gone through the proper ritual may be a rebuke to our lives by the superiority of their lifestyle. Will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So he says the lifestyle of people around us who have not gone through the proper ritual may be a rebuke to us because the quality of their life may actually be morally superior than the quality of our lives who have been through the proper rituals. There's a church in town that um, is trying to teach. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't misunderstand me. But they are trying to teach that you cannot be saved unless you have been baptized. Well, our argument is simply wrong. Paul says a ritual cannot do that for you. It is just a symbol. And what counts is the substance. If you have the substance, then the symbol is unimportant. If you have the symbol and do not have the substance, the symbol is of no value and of no benefit to you. So that's the way Paul is arguing here, is we cannot rely on the fact that we have participated in some ritual, whether it's baptism or confirmation or the Lord's table. We cannot count on those things to give us status before God because we violate the truth that we know and believe in. And the symbol cannot compensate for the lack of substance. So Paul's argument quite simply is it doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or baptized or sanforized or homogenized or pasteurized. The important thing is to have the substance that God is looking for. Now in verses 28 and 29, he explains why that is true why circumcision is not the issue. For, he says in verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul's argument quite simply is that true Jewishness from a biblical standpoint, has nothing to do with bloodlines uh, or line of descent or genetics. That from a biblical standpoint, what makes a man a true Jew is the condition of his heart. What defines biblical Jewishness is inward, not outward. If you've been following the news reports from Palestine, you realize that this is a raging issue in modern Judaism over what constitutes a true Jew, particularly those who convert to Judaism. The Orthodox Jews are insisting that no one be considered a true Jew unless they agree to keep the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. The Reformed Jews are arguing that's nonsense. If they desire to convert to the spirit of our religion, that's all that counts. And they're actually waging battles in the streets over this because certain movie theaters now are 
showing movies on the Sabbath. And this incenses the Orthodox Jews. And the issue is, what is a true Jew? Now, Paul's argument is that both of them are wrong. That what constitutes a true biblical Jew is inward and not outward. The only true Jews, in Paul's argument, in Palestine are those who have come to believe in the Messiah and place their trust in him. Now, he says one that has done that has two things that characterize him as a true Jew. And this, by the way, is why I believe that the promises that have been made to Israel in the Old Testament and have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled to Israel, but will be fulfilled in the new Israel, that is, to the true Jews, those who have placed their faith in the son of Abraham and have become his descendants by virtue of their faith in Christ. Those promises will be fulfilled to the true biblical Jews, those who believe in Christ. Now, there are two characteristics, he says, of the true Jew. First of all, he has been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Circumcision in the flesh could be done by the letter. Anyone with a knife could do that. But Paul says the circumcision that counts is the one that's inward in the heart, and only the Spirit of God can do that. Now, circumcision always involves a cutting off, a cutting away, and a discarding of something. And that's what Paul is saying, is that the true circumcision, the circumcision that counts, is inward in the heart. And there's a cutting off inwardly of the old life. The one who has been circumcised in heart is the man or woman that's come to the place where he or she realizes that he has nothing in himself to commend him to God. There is nothing about him that will recommend him to God or give him standing or status before God. All that self-dependence and self-reliance has been done away with, cut off and removed, and we cast ourselves wholly upon the mercy and grace of God. Now, the second characteristic, he says, is they seek their praise not from men, but from God. The Jew of Paul's day was always trying to impress someone and seek to receive praise from men. Paul says the true Jew no longer cares about what men think of him. Stop comparing themselves to others. Stop competing with others. Stop feeling inferior or superior to others because the only one we seek to please is God. We're playing for an audience of one. And those are the two marks of a true Jew. Now, what's the uh, sort of bottom line of studying this paragraph? We've seen that Paul has demolished any illusions we might have that believing in the Bible cuts any ice with God. And he's demolished the illusion that participating in some ritual will cut any ice with God. Where does Paul want to bring us? Well, I think he wants to bring all of us to the point of simple repentance, first of all. That we must acknowledge this morning before God that every one of us has repeatedly failed to keep the standards that we know to be true and believe in. And to repent of that. And then secondly, to reestablish our claim on God's mercy for acceptance. And to realize that it's only because we've placed faith in Jesus Christ that we have any acceptance or worth or righteousness in the sight of God. I discover running to believers all the time who are plagued with a constant sense of guilt, a steady, quiet sense of unease and dis-ease that their lives are not measuring up. Well, in point of fact, they are not. None of our lives measure up. And that's the good news of the gospel that God is willing to grant to us on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ, grant to us forgiveness and wipe away that uh, that floating sense of guilt and replace it with a total sense of his acceptance and love and compassion for us. What I'd like us to do in closing, if you would, just close your eyes and bow your head with me.
do something that we don't do very often. I would like to read with you and have you pray along with me a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, the book of prayer used in the Anglican Church and the Episcopalian Church. And make this the prayer of your heart this morning. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. And then while your heads are still bowed, eyes closed, this is the response that the minister is encouraged to make on the basis of that prayer of repentance. And again, take this to heart as God's promise to you. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, has given power and commandment to declare and pronounce to his people, being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardons and absolves all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Amen.